The following audio is from West Pines Community Church. For more information about West Pines, visit us online at westpines.org. You can join us live Sunday mornings at 9, 1030, or 12 in Pembroke Pines, Florida, or online at westpines.org. My personal opinion is that the greatest adventure film of all time, there's a lot of good ones, but the best adventure film of all time is Indiana Jones, Raiders of the Lost Ark. Thank you. I appreciate that. I think it, I mean, it is culture defining. I mean, it is, it is genre defining. It just created like a, a whole culture around adventure movies in and of itself. It, it's such a great movie. And I, I, mean, I kind of feel this is unfair to, for me to be talking about it. We should, we should probably see a clip from Raiders of the Lost Ark. You think we should probably see a clip, right? Okay, if you insist, I just happen to have one since you guys wanted it. Here you go. exhausted. Okay. We can all agree that is a stressful day. Yes? Okay. There's something about adventure movies. I mean, that's just the opening sequence. And if you've seen that movie, you know, it's like, it's just smooth sailing after that, right? No, no. The entire movie is like one death-defying moment after the next. If you remember this, this is, and this is fundamentally what adventure movies are. I mean, just think about that two minutes. He was almost crushed by rocks shot by poison darts, okay, he almost fell into a bottomless pit, then he was almost locked inside a cave for all of eternity, almost crushed by the door, and then a gigantic boulder almost squashed him. That's two minutes uh, of the opening. 
And that's really, I mean, that is what adventures are. You string together these, these thrilling, uncomfortable, death-defying moments all together, and there's just something that is just so thrilling about watching them, and there's something that draws us to those kinds of adventures. And sometimes we even find ourselves like, man, I, I, like, I want to live an adventure, like there's something about that that we see that's alluring, that draws us in, right? Like we, we want our lives to be something that is, is pursuing something, that is, means something, that matters, that overcomes the odds. We, we want to give our, our lives and give ourselves to something that matters. But the thing about adventures is that adventures, again, like there, there's not a lot of comfortable parts to Indiana Jones. I mean, that the entire thing is stressful. He almost dies over and over and over again. And so what's interesting is that one side of us is we're drawn to adventure. But then so often when difficult and uncomfortable things happen in our life, we're like, whoa, what is this? And we don't bring those two things together. So I want you to think about it like this. I want you, there's this adventure principle that I want you to think about in your mind. We can't desire adventure Someone can't desire to go on an adventure and at the same time demand comfort. If you desire adventure, then at the same time, don't at the same time demand comfort. In fact, one of the most uncomfortable scenes is right before that in the cave with all the tarantulas. You remember that scene? I couldn't even bring myself to show you that scene. It's so uncomfortable, okay? There, there's adventures are by default. That's kind of what they are. By definition, they are all of these difficult, difficult circumstances that are overcome. If we, we cannot desire adventure at the same time, demand comfort. Now, this is an important idea to grab a hold of because no matter what is, is in our lives, we are called, if we're called to want to be a world changer, an influencer, a leader, if we're wanting to, to influence the sphere that we're in, we're going to have to press into a concept that's very much like the adventure principle. We're looking at a part of the Bible, it's 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. We're looking at 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. Um, you can look at that inside your study guide or in your uh, Bible or Bible app, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. Let me just give you the background of what's happening. This is a letter written to a group of Christians in the city called Thessalonica. So they are Thessalonians. That's why that's, the book is named that. And they're writing this, Paul and Silas and Timothy these missionaries are writing this letter to these group of Christians in Thessalonica. And they had recently been there, like a couple months or a couple years before, they have been traveling around, Paul and company have been traveling around and sharing the message about Jesus on this journey from city to city to city, and they pass through Thessalonica and they share this message about the gospel, but it gets a little dicey in Thessalonica. There's a mob that forms because people are responding to this message, becoming Christ followers, and there's other religious leaders who are jealous. They form a mob, turn the whole city in an uproar, and they start making this accusation against Paul and Silas and Timothy. And this accusation is really fascinating. They're saying these men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. 
And what's so interesting about that, and this is all recorded in the book of Acts chapter 17. You can go back and check that out later this week. Acts chapter 17 records the story, and they preserve what the accusation is. And I think the reason they preserve it is because it's not really an accusation. It's actually an affirmation. It's exactly what they're intending to do, is to, be, is to influence every city they go to, turn it upside down, be a change agent in that city, and it's actually an affirmation of what they're attempting to do, and actually, it's a description of who we're supposed to be as well, as Christ followers. And so you move into this letter that we're going to be looking at, uh, we've been looking at last week and through these next couple weeks in Thessalonians, and we get to this chapter two, and, and they just say like this, this is what Paul says, he says, you know how we lived among you. He says, you remember it. You remember how we acted. You're witnesses to how we lived. And he's going to list their character traits that they lived out before these Thessalonians. Now, when you put those two things together, this is the city where they were called those men who turned the world upside down. And then he's writing back saying, this is how we acted. Then you realize when he's describing how they live, He's giving us a description of what it means to be a world changer. You follow me there? He's in the very city where they're like, these men turn the world upside down. He's writing back to those same residents, those Christians there, and he's saying, this is how we live. This, for us as world changers, he doesn't use that term, but he says, essentially saying, as world changers, this is how we're living. We want you to know explicitly, and that's been preserved for us in 1 Thessalonians, so we can go through these attributes and we can see not just leadership principles, they're leadership principles, but they're more than just, here's how you manage someone. It's more than that. It's, this is the description of people that turn the world upside down. These attributes are the attributes of those who start a movement. These are the attributes of those who enter into their sphere and change the culture of that sphere, and it's never the same. These are people who change whole organizations, turn around whole families, change the course of whole friend groups, affect the whole school that they attend. This is that level of attribute. So we're digging into these because God's called you and I to be that in our spheres as well, called us to do that as a church. So we're going to dig in. I want you to look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. We're going to look at verses 1 and 2 today. 1 Thessalonians 2, verse 1. Here's what it says. For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. In other words, they, they came to share this message about Jesus, and it wasn't in vain. People responded. They became Christ followers. Our coming to you was not in vain. Now watch what he says in verse 2. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know. We had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. Now let's pick this apart a little bit. He uses this phrase, we came to share the gospel of God. Now that's very churchy, biblical language, so let's break this down for normal people like us. What does gospel of God mean? The word gospel means literally good news. So this means the good news of God, or we came to share with you God's good news. Now understand, they're walking around in this region of the world that they're going from city to city. This is a very religious, spiritual part of the world in that time in history. And as they would go into these cities, they would see temples, 
They'd see all of these idols, pagan gods. There'd be all these festivals and festivities and rituals. They were deeply, deeply religious, deeply spiritual people. And there's something that all religions have in common. All religions across cultures throughout history, you could boil them down to this basic idea. It's this. If you do X, Y, and Z, you're in. In other words, if you do X, Y, and Z, what do you mean by X, Y, and Z? It depends on what religion or, or what faith or what spiritual practice, but they say X, Y, and Z, if you do these morals, if you do these religious worship practices, you make these sacrifices, you participate in these festivals and festivities, if you, do, if you live like this, if you pray like this, if you sing like this, if you do X, Y, and Z, then you're in. By in, it could mean all different things. It could mean by in, you enter into the afterlife, nirvana, or paradise, or you get reincarnated, or you're in in that the gods bless your crops, or they bless you, or, or whatever it may be. If you do X, Y, and Z, you're in. So if Paul and Silas and Timothy are traveling around to share another religion, like a new set of X, Y, and Z, and a new way that you're in, is that good news? That's old news. How could that be God's good news if they're just bringing another set of XYZ that you have to do in order to be in? They come with good news. And what they share about Jesus is utterly different than any other religion. In fact, the message of Jesus may not be able to be classified as a religion. Because here's what the message of Jesus is. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, God in the flesh, he came to earth he did X, Y, and Z. And if you believe that and put your faith in him, you are in. He did X, Y, and Z so that you could be in because you couldn't do X, Y, and Z on your own. What did Jesus do? What's X, Y, and Z? Jesus came to earth. He lived a perfect, sinless life, the life of obedience no human could fully accomplish, but then offered himself to die on a cross. He's suffered and crucified on a cross to pay the penalty as a substitute for our sins. He paid the penalty we should have paid, dies on the cross, and then on the third day rises again from the dead. And the message is if you put your faith in Jesus, you say yes. He says that counts for you and you're in. What do you mean that we're in? We're reconciled to the one who made us and who loves us more than anything else more than anyone else could. Reconcile to the one who loves us and we will spend eternity with him in heaven. And he shares this message. He said, we shared this great news. Put your faith in Jesus. He accomplished it so you can be in. He says, we shared this good news. It wasn't in vain. You started coming to Christ. And he says, but you notice... So these people are coming to Christ to realize, man, God, if you love me that much, of course I'm going to give my life and follow after you. If you've done all that for me, how could I not? He says, we share this message not in vain, but did you notice we shared it with great boldness in the midst of much conflict. Did you notice that? Now, you and I, we're, we're no strangers to conflict. Everyone has conflict in our lives. We have um, conflict while we're driving, okay? We have conflict... With friends, we have conflict with family members, we have blowouts with, with people we know where there's yelling and screaming, but we even have like really subtle conflicts. Like, have you ever had like an undercover conflict on social media? You post something and someone else posts something, but they don't really address what you said, but they really are addressing what you said. 
So then you post something back, even though it's not really addressing, but addressing, and then they say something even more, and now you're addressing something, but not even addressing each other, but you know that they know that you know what they're addressing. Okay, you've had that. Like, you're not even, like, looking at it. You're not even in each other's presence. You're not even talking to each other, but you're having a conflict. We're not, we're, we're not strangers to conflict, okay? We, we, life brings conflict. But what Paul says is, I, we shared this message with boldness with much conflict. Like, let me remind you again what happened in Thessalonica, and I want you to ask yourself if you've ever experienced this kind of conflict. It wasn't like one or two angry people, like writing some subtext on social media. It was an angry mob. I don't know if you've ever had an entire angry mob mad at you. That's conflict. They turned the whole city in an uproar. The entire city... Are, are like down with Paul and Silas. The whole city's mad at them. That's a lot of conflict. And they're saying, and even in the midst of all of that, a mob, we still stayed true and had the boldness. We, we had boldness in our God and stayed true to this message that we were bringing. But I want you to see what they said right before that because that adds even more emphasis to this. Did you notice what they said right before that? He says, and you know where we came from. Right before we came to Thessalonica, we were in another town called Philippi, and he says, and you know we, we were sh treated shamefully and suffered greatly right before we came to Thessalonica. So here's what I want to challenge you to do. Sometime this week, go back to the chapter before in Acts where it talks about Thessalonica. Go to that, the chapter before that, Acts 16. Read what happened in Philippi because it's crazy. There is a mob there too. But it looked a little different. They just weren't shouting accusations. They got a hold of Paul and Silas and dragged them physically through the town, brought them to the city center where the authorities are, and they said this, these guys are teaching us to do unlawful things. Completely false accusation. The authorities don't ever put them on trial, never ask them to defend themselves. They immediately are in a rage. They command that Paul and Silas be stripped of their clothes, and then they beat them with rods, turn them over to the jailer. There's been no trial. Turn them over to the jailer. The jailer says, I'm not just going to throw you in jail. I'm going to throw you in the inner jail, like the dark, dank dungeon that's crawling with rats. I'm throwing you in there. They throw them in that inner jail and put their feet in stocks. Now, let's kind of review this for a second. They're dragging you through a city. That is a, that, that's tough. Falsely accusing you, the injustice of that stripping you down, the humiliation of that. And then they beat them with rods. Now, there are some cultures in the world that still part of their legal system is caning. And so we have modern documentation of what actually happens when someone's beaten uh, with rods. And according to accounts, by the third lash, your body is in shock and many people have already passed out. And this is a time with... In ancient times, there, there's no like human rights going on in Philippi at this point. They're dragged there, they're beaten, probably unconscious, dragged to a dungeon, and then this is the worst part of, of the torture, is their, their feet are put in stocks. Now, why is this the worst part? I want you to imagine that your entire backside has just been pulverized. It's been split open and bleeding. 
You've got um, bruised, mutilated flesh that's going to take probably weeks to heal. What you need to be is in the hospital laying on your stomach for probably a couple weeks. But they lay you on a, on a um, stone floor, locking your, your ankles in stocks so you can't roll over and you have to lie there all night on that stone floor on your wounded back. And they spend the night there. Now, I'm not going to spoil the end of Acts 16, I'll just because it's incredible. I'll just say they escape from prison. They get on the road, and they go on to Thessalonica. That's their next stop. Now, let me ask you. You just get dragged through a city, falsely accused, stripped, beaten, thrown into prison, and put in stocks. What's your mentality when you get back on the road? I think I'm going to go home. Mission trip over. I think I'm going to head back home and I, I think I've, I've done my, my great mission. I, I need a vacation. I, I need a hospital. I need a career change. I need to go in a different direction. Okay, like where are you at? That's not what Paul and Silas do. They go to Thessalonica. Like remember, they're probably limping into Thessalonica. They probably can't sit down yet when they're with these people in Thessalonica. They limp into Thessalonica, and what do they do? The same thing again. They start preaching boldly about this message of Jesus. And what happens? Another angry mob. If you haven't backed out, at this point, you're like, I'm going home. I've done the mob thing. Not fun. Not interested in doing this, the, the whole angry mob thing again. I'm out of here. That's, and that's what they're saying. Do you notice this is what his logic is? He says, you know where we came from, how much we suffered and how much we were treated shamefully. You saw that we hobbled into your city and we preached boldly, boldly again in the midst of much conflict. That's courage. That's tremendous boldness and courage, unflinching. And that is an attribute of a world changer. He's saying, you saw how we were among you. You, you saw that we had boldness. He, that is the attribute of someone who's leveraging their life to be a change agent in their spheres, to be an influencer for good. That's the attribute of someone who desires to lead. Now let's define our terms here for a second, okay? What do we mean by courage or boldness? Are we saying courage, that's when you're fearless, you have, have no fear whatsoever? Is that what we're talking about? No, that, that's not what courage is. And it's vital that we understand this. Let, let me illustrate it like this. Um, I have some phobias. One of them is spiders. I do not like spiders. I don't like large spiders. I don't like small spiders. I don't like them in the zoo, okay? I don't like spiders outside. I don't like them in my house. I don't like them in the wild, okay? I just don't, don't like spiders of any kind. And not too long ago, I was driving in my car. It was nighttime. I was by myself. I'm driving along, and out of the corner of my eye, very close to my face... I see on the window a spider, and I, I, I look really clear. I'm like, oh, thank goodness it's on the outside of the window. 
and it's crawling along that side window and it gets to that little pole, okay, that right before it becomes the windshield and I'm expecting to lose sight of it, but that's when I realized, because I saw it crawl across it, that it is on the inside. And I'm talking, this spider, I mean, <laughs> I mean, it was like the size of a quarter, okay, it was huge. And like at this point, I realize it's inside my car. It's right in front of me on the windshield. I scream, okay? I drive across like seven lanes of traffic. I pull over, open the door. I literally leap out of the car, collect myself. I'm like, okay, I've got to be a man here. I've got to get this spider out and remove it from my vehicle, okay? And that's when the worst case scenario happened. I could no longer find it. So I did what any person logically would do at that point, lit the car on fire. <laughs> it's the only thing you gotta do. I mean, there's no, no other options. Just light the, burn the whole thing down, okay? All right, I didn't light it on fire. I never found it. It's probably still in my car. It's probably grown to the size of a beach ball. It's underneath my seat just waiting for me, okay? It's humongous by now. I have a phobia of spiders. Now, some of you, you don't have phobias of spiders because you're messed up, okay? Some of you like really crazy, you actually have pet spiders, okay? Now if someone has like a pet spider in a tank, you're not afraid of them, okay, and you, what those people do who have those things, they like take their pet spider named Furry, okay, out of the tank. It's like their little pet, no big deal, they're not afraid of them. But if someone is really afraid of spiders, they go over to their friend's house who has a spider and they reach their hand into the tank, okay? Like, that requires significant courage. I personally can testify to that. That requires significant courage, all right? I would not say the person who owns the spider had courage putting their arm in, but the person who's getting over a phobia, I'd say, man, that took a lot of courage. Why? What is courage? Courage is not the absence of fear. In fact, it's really the opposite. Courage implies the presence of a fearful situation, right? If there's, no, if there's no fear at all, that doesn't require courage. What courage actually is, is the will to push forward through a circumstance that requires fear, that, that brings on fear. Courage is pushing through that. So I want you to think about, about what Paul and Silas have been through. They've been through significant, fearful, and uncomfortable situations, and they've had to have courage to push through, and they're saying, this is the attribute of a world changer. You will come across a situation that requires you to push through and have courage in the midst of a fearful or uncomfortable situation. Leadership is always, influencing someone is always going to require courage. If you're gonna be the first one to speak up when no one else will, that's gonna mean you're gonna to have to have courage. If you're gonna advocate a change of course, and you're the, the only one that's gonna, the first person to say that, or you're the one who's risking to say that, or if you're gonna take on a risk that no one else is going to, if you're gonna lead the way and influence the way, that's going to require courage. Leadership is going to, it will mean difficult, uncomfortable, hard circumstances that necessarily comes with the circumstance. So in other words, there's a leadership principle that's pretty much the same as the adventure principle. 
Let me put it like this. Go ahead and bring it up on the, on the screens. Think of it like this when it comes to leadership. You cannot desire leadership, but demand comfort. You can't at the same time say, I want to be an influencer. I want to, have, I want to lead the way. I, 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 want, to, I, I want to be a catalyst in, in, in this environment that I'm in. You cannot be de- desiring leadership and expect that it's going to be comfortable. It's going to be difficult. It's going to be hard. You cannot desire leadership but demand comfort. I want this to sink into our brain, so I want to say this out loud together, okay? Read this with me. You cannot desire leadership but demand comfort. Write that down in your study guide. You cannot desire, say, look, I want my life to matter. I want my life to, to, inf- to be an influential life. I want my life to be a catalyst. I want to be a change agent in this sphere and at the same time expect that it's going to be comfortable. In fact, we can just take a step back for a second. Every single one of the attributes we're about to look at through this series, all of them are going to require Courage. And the following, the journey of following Jesus in and of itself requires courage. Think of it like this. Um, C.S. Lewis put it this way. There's a quote that I want you to see about courage. This is what he said. Courage is not simply one of the virtues, but the form of every virtue at the testing point, which means at the point of highest reality. If you're following Jesus, it's going to require courage. If you say, I want to live a life of integrity, that's fine when it's easy. It's at the point that it's uncomfortable, difficult, hard, that you know it's the testing point that you know if you really have integrity. If you're saying, I I want any attribute, I want to live a life of kindness, of generosity, of of love, of purity, uh, of faith. If I want to live that kind of life, when it's easy and it doesn't require courage, you don't know whether that, that, that virtue hasn't had the testing point. Courage is what combines and partners with all of those different attributes at their testing point. It's the will to push through when it's difficult, when it's uncomfortable. Leadership absolutely is going to require courage. Let's look at this in three different ways in our different spheres. I want you to think of it like this. When it comes to leadership, these three areas in particular are going to require courage. The first one's decision-making. Every decision is a risk, isn't it? Every decision's a risk. Whether it's where do I go to school, what job do I take, my career path, a change in career, when to retire, a decision for my family, a decision for my personal life, it's always a risk. And it's the time that we're pressing in the most to say, God, I'm trying to follow what you want and and we're listening to God so that we can make his decision. But it's always a risk. And sometimes our difficulty in decision-making is really boiling down to a lack of courage. If you struggle with indecision, it might be because you struggle to be decisive and make decisions. It might be because you are waiting for the decision to get easier to make. And so you're waiting for new data, new perspective, new ideas, circumstances to shift because it's the decision, you know that you really know the decision, it's just too hard, it's requiring too much courage and you're waiting and you're being indecisive, but what we know the damage of indecision is sometimes indecision makes the decision for you. And it's not always the right decision. 
As a leader, it takes as an influencer, and when it, means, when it comes to following God, there's going to be decision points we're pressing in, saying, God, help me make the right decision. And it's being ready for the fact that it's going to be risky at times, and it's going to be uncomfortable. Decision-making requires courage. And part of the reason decision-making requires courage is because sometimes the right decision is the unpopular decision. If you're a people-pleaser and you're struggling with a decision, beware, because without realizing what you may be struggling with is trying to decide who to please and who to disappoint. But if you're wanting to be the one that's a change agent in your family, in that, in that place of work, and you're God's instrument to bring transformation, then you need God's decision regardless of how popular it is. That doesn't mean you dismiss input, you take that input, and you, but in the end, it's popularity doesn't, it's not what the most important thing is. It's making the right decision, and that is going to require courage. Decision-making requires courage. Conflict requires courage. In all of our spheres, we face conflict. In our social sphere with our friends, at our place of work, at school, where it comes to our, even where we live, in our family, we face conflict. And handling conflict in a healthy way requires courage. And we say, look, I know that I'm supposed to have a, a, a godly relationships. I want to have a, a healthy friendships. And I want to lead the way to have a, a healthy working environment and a healthy culture here in this organization. Or I want to have a healthy marriage. If I want to have those ideals for me and I want to lead the way to have those ideals, then I have to be, I have to be willing to do conflict well, which will require courage. Here's how this plays out. Let's talk about this in, in marriage, but it applies in, in any other place that we want to have an influence in that sphere. But let's talk about marriage. Sometimes there's an issue that needs to be addressed, but we're avoiding the conflict. And so what typically happens is we get frustrated and upset and our emotions escalate, but we wait and hold off till the edge wears off emotionally. And then, but then our, our kind of emotions go down and then we say something like this, well, I'm just going to let it go. I don't, wanna, I don't want the headache. I'm just going to leave it. And I sweep it under the rug. And then all of a sudden it happens again. I get frustrated and emotional and I, and I don't want to address it. I'm avoiding conflict. And so I say, okay, and I wait till I'm no longer emotionally motivated to address it and I sweep it under the rug. Well, what eventually happens? Eventually it keeps happening keeps happening, and eventually I am emotionally motivated to have the discussion. And my emotions boil over. And now the way I'm addressing it, I'm in the worst possible place emotionally to address something in a healthy manner. Because now I'm exaggerating because I've got so much pent up frustration. Now I'm accusing you always do this. And now if I'm hurt enough, I'm actually using the conflict itself as revenge and trying to hurt them back. And so now the person that I'm in this fight with, now I'm leaving them no chance to be able to receive this conflict in a healthy way because they're dealing with the exaggerations, the accusations, and the wounds. So what I needed to do, or what you needed to do, is at that point, yes, I'm frustrated. When that wears off, what happens is my emotional motivation goes away because I'm no longer, it's not fresh, not freshly angry. That's when I need to say, okay, but I need to have the courage to induce an uncomfortable 
discussion so that I can, in that space, have a surgical discussion about the conflict in a way that's affirming, truthful, listening, and it's healthy. It's the same place at work. You might be dealing with a coworker and you're frustrated and frustrated, but you're avoiding the conflict because it's uncomfortable. Leadership will mean we have to square up to an uncomfortable conversation and have the conversation. And sometimes with conflict, we're just waiting till we emotionally want to, which usually means because we're that angry. And that's when we handle it the worst. Decision-making requires courage. Conflict requires courage. But change also requires courage. I heard it put like this one time. Changing is difficult, but not changing is fatal. Changing is difficult, not changing is fatal. Any of the spheres you're in, socially, family, work, church, any of the spheres that you're in, We as a people tend to be resistant to change, but you may have been placed there by God and he's saying there's a culture in this family. There's a culture in this department. There's a culture in this serving ministry team. There's a culture in your friend group. There's a culture in the organization that you're working at and I've placed you there to change the culture because it's unhealthy, it's ungodly, and it's damaging. I've placed you to change that culture and he's put that calling on your heart. Be ready because it will be be met with resistance. Change is always met with resistance. So it doesn't matter what sphere that you're in. Can I bring you to, to one of the spheres where change is often the most resisted? It's in your church sphere. A lot of times our, our perspective on church is, man, my, there's so much change in various spheres, but I, I, church is like my warm security blanket. I just always want it to be safe and the same and predictable, but what do we know about a growing, thriving, catalytic entity in any field? Changing is difficult, not changing is fatal. And we bring this idea of change and our readiness for change, and we routinely bring this up, especially on weeks like today where it's not like we have an announcement or anything like that, but we want to bring it on a week like this so that we have a culture of leadership here at our church that's receptive and ready for change because we say, because our church is called to be the catalyst in this world, we're ready and agile as a church. Ready, God, for whatever you bring our way, we are not gonna be resistant to that and we're, we're going to push forward because we're following you regardless of how difficult and how hard it is. Dealing with decision-making requires courage, conflict re- requires courage, and also change requires courage. And in, in the end, we look at these world changers like guys like Paul and Silas and we ask, man, we all have courage that we need to have in our life, but look at those guys. I mean, the, to face another city, another angry mob, I mean, how did they have the fortitude to do that? I wanna close with this quote. It's one of the best quotes I've ever seen on the idea of, of courage. I wanna show this. It's attributed to many people, but Um, Roosevelt is one of them. It says this, courage is not the absence of fear, but the assessment that something is more important than fear. Christian, you're called, you have a calling on your life. You're called to the school you attend, the family you've been placed in, the friend group 
the workplace, the neighborhood, the ministry team you're on. You've been called into that sphere. He's got a calling, an intention for you, and it will unquestionably require courage. Be ready that it will be hard. Be ready that it will be uncomfortable. In fact, some of you say, look, honestly, tomorrow morning's gonna require courage for me. I'm going back to that school. I'm going back to work and that's gonna require courage or I, I gotta go home later today. I've got this decision looming over me, this major life decision that's requiring courage or I, I've got some, some health uncertainties and even just waking up every day and pushing through requires courage. You, you say, I've, I've got some conflict brewing that I've gotta settle. That's requiring courage. I've got difficult in my life and you say, you have no idea. I, I'm requiring courage. Help me know why is it worth pushing through this fear? Christian, because of what's at stake. Because you and I have been given the calling to take the single one hope into the world, the message of Jesus Christ. And those classmates of yours, that is their hope. Those co-workers that you work alongside of, it's their hope. The neighborhood you're in, the people that you're driving alongside of on the way to work, it's their hope. It's, just, it's the hope for your family members. You've get, been given such a high calling. And so we must push through the difficulty, the, the fearful circumstances, the dif- discomfort, and have courage. And how do I know that you can be equipped to have courage? Because you bear the name Christian, You bear the name of one who came down from heaven knowing what he would suffer. He knew what he was coming to face. He knew he was going to be facing rejection. He knew he was going to face injustice. He knew he was going to face humiliation. He knew he was going to face bodily torture. He knew he was going to face death itself. He knew that more than that, what he was going to face is taking hell itself, taking the wrath of God for our sin on himself. And he came and he fixed his eyes on the cross and was unshakable and he pushed through and he had courage to purchase your soul back for God and you bear his name so you can have courage I don't know what circumstances that you're walking into tomorrow morning this afternoon but I do know the calling placed on your life he's intending you to use, he's intending to use you as a world changer transform the spheres that you're in. You've been placed there with every bit of godly intentionality. He knew right where he'd place you. He wants you to turn that world upside down. And it's going to require courage. The place that you may be at today is you're hearing these words and you're hearing the courage of Jesus Christ. As you're saying, you know, honestly, I always thought that this was a religion And maybe you heard those words say, no, this is like the opposite, really. It's not about do this and this and this and and you'll be be in. No, it's it's not about what you do. It's what Jesus did for you. And the first step on this adventurous journey is simply to surrender and say, I accept what Jesus did. I believe he died to pay for my sins. I believe that there's salvation in no one else, not my own effort, not my own spirituality, my own religious effort, but only in the name of Jesus. And if you're ready to accept that, today is the day of your salvation for eternity.
you'll be saved for eternity. Is that you? Let me lead you in a simple prayer if that's you, a, a prayer of salvation. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes? If that's you, then right there in your seat, make these words your words. Just simply say this. Jesus, thank you for having the courage to rescue me. Thank you for facing the suffering and the humiliation and the pain and the wrath of God so that I could be forgiven. Thank you for taking my place. I surrender to you. I want to follow after you in this great adventure. Give me courage. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening. For more resources and to check out other teaching series, please visit our website at westpines.org. If you would like to speak to somebody about beginning a relationship with Jesus or ask any questions you have about this teaching, please call at 954-432-0321. Or you can email us at podcast at westpines.org.